You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer. And I'd like to thank all of you for joining us for this podcast episode to discuss highlights from the 2022 American Society of Hematology annual meeting. Today, we're going to be joined by Dr. Lee Greenberger, who is the Chief Scientific Officer and Senior Vice President at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. I have to say, we've been doing the podcast for about three years now, which is a long time. And our talk, Lee, last year, at the end of the year, right after Ash, was honestly one of the most enjoyable that I've had and most interesting for so many reasons. Some of it is you and some of it is just all the great information you brought us. So firstly, thanks for joining us. My pleasure to be here. So, you know, I want to ask you first, just very broadly, again, last year was an exciting year. There was a lot of new information. Just from the 60,000 foot point of view, how was this year for you as a participant and a scientist? Yeah, well, first of all, of course, there were many more people there. I didn't actually come last year. I did it all virtual, and I think myself and many other people attended. So the attendance was pretty remarkable. I think it was over 20,000 people. So we had all the key players and uh, people from around the world. So that was great to see everybody again after about two to three years. In terms of new, what's new and what's exciting, I think what we're seeing now is couple of things. First of all, immunotherapy, the bispecifics, all the immunotherapy approaches are really coming to, I would say, I'm fairly say dominate, certainly dominate in the lymphoma field and myeloma, becoming very important therapy. So that, and what we're seeing is new immunotherapy approaches and understanding the immune system better, which we still have actually a fair bit of work to do. So that's the first thing. I think we're also in, you know, we're sort of blessed because we've got a lot of different therapies. We've made some good, decent progress. And now we're sort of beginning to move those overall survival curves up. And that's going to take a fair bit of time and a lot of clinical trials to actually demonstrate what's really going to work better. So what combinations, what sequences of all these different therapies, how do we use all these therapies to get those survival curves up. It's much similar to the way ALL combination therapy had been developed, and it took decades to really perfect that to 90% cure rates in kids. That could be part of the solution. You know, everybody's hoping for sort of the holy grail, like we saw early, maybe years ago, when you sort of knock it out of the park. Well, knock it out of the park turned out to be, okay, 50% of the patients, let's say, on CD19 CAR-T therapy had long-term disease control. And what we've learned is, well, we still have a fair bit of work to do. We need to get that survival curve up. And I think that's what we're seeing. So that's part of it. There are a couple of new targets that look exciting, particularly for leukemia. And then diversity and equity remains a big issue. We need to get underserved minorities onto clinical trials. Not an easy task because 
Patients are reticent for clinical trials. They look upon it as a last alternative. So that, combined with the regulators beginning to shape what the expectations are for an approvable registrational trial in terms of diversity and equity, are sort of coming together to say, not only do we have a problem, but we have, you know, regulators going to actually sort of raise the bar and we're going to have to solve this problem. It's not an easy problem to solve. So I'd like to dig in a little bit on that. A long time ago with Hodgkin's disease, I mean, the cure rate was 5%. MOP put it up to around 50 to 60%. I mean, there was showing a statistical difference was not that difficult. Is it becoming more difficult now that, you know, again, you've got CAR-T showing 50% disease control and disease-free survival. Is it going to become harder to move the bar and to prove it? Well, I think it's definitely going to become harder to prove it. Yeah, yeah. It may not be acceptable anymore to simply say, I have a high response rate or I have a PFS of, let's say, for a BCMA bispecific of 8.8 months and say, as we get more agents in the same class, is it really better? And we'll get back to that a little bit. We'll talk about xanabrutinib versus abrutinib. So yes, the bar is being raised. The good news is we have a lot of different shots on goal. I think what we've learned over the history of chemotherapy is coming at tumors with different mechanisms of action is really critical. And that's partly a demonstration of, well, nature is sort of like smarter than us. There's just so many different paths that can cause cancer, or you can get resistance, that in any one person, it's hard to predict and know what the basis of the response is going to be. So that's where the combination chemotherapy comes in. Unfortunately, you know, the, the price you pay for that is potential toxicity when you start combining things. And so the combinations have to be safe. They have to be financially feasible. We can't keep combining, you know, two, three monoclonal or, you know, mo or multiple CAR Ts in sequence. It's going to be very expensive. So we're going to have to figure that one out. And also to make it accessible to general people, Oral therapies are the way to go. And, you know, working out the combination of oral therapies, it's going to take some time. It's, it's going to happen. Preclinical work is great for feasibility, but in actuality, I think it's the clinical trials that become critical to figure out what is the best combination to move that bar up and then actually prove that you've got something better than standard of care. It's being done. And companies are doing it, taking a lot of work and a lot of patience. You know, let me ask you, before we really delve into the findings from this year, you know, some of the master trials have been, well, have single arms yep. connected to or tied into one mutation or one target. Will, broadly speaking, you know, and based on what you were just talking about with combination therapy, what, what do you see as sort of the next generation of master trials? Yeah, I think moving to, certainly for leukemia, moving to combination trials is going to have to be the way to go. I don't, it's going to be a rare case where we can eradicate the disease with a single target because most of these diseases have multiple drivers and that can change over time. There's very rare examples. Let's say, um, take Waldenstrom's, which is a mid, 95 patients have mid D88 mutations and abrutinib, which is in that pathway, works really well. It's not curative, by the way. I mean, you don't get a whole lot of complete responses. So even then, you know, with a single driver, you know, that may not do it. So combinations are very likely going to be the way to go. So I have to say, as you were 
talking as we got started, I wrote down, I think, some of the key points that you brought up, some of the things that were exciting this year. So let's dive right in. What's new with bispecifics? And for that matter, what are they? Right. So, of course, the oldest one is blinitumumab, which is the uh, oldest bispecific antibody used for the treatment of B acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or ALL. The new data with blinitumumab is demonstrating its use in patients who are MRD negative, have BALL, and when blinitumumab is combined into the regimen of chemotherapy compared to just chemotherapy alone, there is a marked improvement in overall survival. In the chemotherapy arm, the overall median overall survival was 71 months. It was not a, not reached in the blinitumumab plus chemotherapy arm, and in fact, about 80 to 90% of those patients who are on a blinitumumab plus chemotherapy survive out beyond 80 months. That's pretty impressive data. This was a late-breaking abstract. Then you have a whole series of bispecifics coming through, the anti-CD20s by anti-CD3s, and of course, the uh, CD20 is the target of rituxan or obinutuzumab. Now you've got multiple bispecifics that are directed to CD20 that will bring the T cells to the tumor. In other words, they bind to CD20 on the tumor and they'll bind to CD3 on the T cells, bring those together. The data with mosinituzumab is in follicular lymphoma is uh, really substantial. That drug, mosinituzumab for relapse, I can't remember if it's newly diagnosed or relapse follicular lymphoma. Anyway, that data is really substantial and will be considered for FDA approval within the next perhaps two weeks, maybe a month from now. So I think we're going to have another bispecific on the market quite soon. And then there are a whole other series of bispecifics, anti-CD20s by anti-CD3s that are coming along right behind it. There's also anti-BCMA bispecifics. So what I'm saying is anti-BCMA bispecifics. There's a number of them also in development. There's also um, a new target in myeloma, anti-GPRC5D bispecific. That looks interesting, and there was a publication on that recently. So we're just seeing a, a lot of these bispecifics and also learning how to use them, step dosing, so we can avoid or, or a, a dramatic CRS and, and uh, neurological toxicity, step dosing to bring them up and then continue them for a number of cycles. So bispecifics are off the shelf, and that's great because they basically could get around the problem of autologous CAR T cells. For example, the BCMA CAR Ts are given once, and if they work, great. The BCMA bispecifics are going to be given multiple times, perhaps let's say every three weeks on some sort of cycle, multiple times. And so while it's off the shelf, it has to be given on a high frequency. Patients are going to have to come back every three weeks or four weeks at some defined interval, and that could be for a year or more. And so bispecifics are great, but we're going to have to figure out can we use them for a defined period of time? Not only because it's got the inconvenience, but it also has got the expense to go with it. There was a very nice presentation from Nancy Bartlett, who showed actually with mosinituzumab, you can have a defined period of time with mosinituzumab in follicular lymphoma to control the disease long-term. And so we have to figure out how to use these bispecifics appropriately. All right, let me ask you about the bispecifics. You mentioned 
neurotoxicity. This is a new set of drugs in general for the community, uh, hematologists, oncologists. So what are the toxicities? And I'm really interested, especially in neurologic, is it like CAR-T in that way? Yeah, it's pretty similar to, you know, it's similar to the, to the CAR-T and it looks just very similar. It's, it's probably an over-engagement of the T-cells and how they respond. And so in, in that way, do you anticipate there's going to be a problem in the community or are these in a sense, uh, you, you were talking about sort of strategies to make it possible? Yeah. So the step dosing is important. The grade of toxicity that we're seeing with the bispecifics are not high grade. And perhaps because we've done the step dosing and adjusted the dose to avoid that toxicity. So that's important because if these things are going to be used off the shelf, and in a possibly in a non-NCI designated center, they're going to have to have toxicities that are manageable. Uh, we don't want patients uh, getting infused and going home and having all sorts of high-grade toxicity. Absolutely. I want to ask you about, again, from the meeting, obviously a lot of information on the CD20 slash CD3 by specifics. Other drugs that were presented, are many of them very similar? Are they targeting things differently? What might we get from a series of drugs yet to come? So I think um, uh, the GPCR5D, that was a bispecific, and in fact, there's a CAR-T as well, and there was articles in the New England Journal about that. Definitely a new target in multiple myeloma, and it's efficacious. Um, it's been you know shown in the clinic. There is additional targets that are coming in myeloma. There's a whole number of targets in leukemia that are being tried, whether that be CD33, FLT3, CLL1, a whole variety of targets. We'll have to see if we sort of crack that nut in AML, which is where the CAR-Ts are being tried. So far, that's been quite difficult. Treating a leukemia with a CAR-T, we've had great success with ALL. Certainly, BALL, it really has been fabulous. AML, much more difficult. And we'll have to see if there if there's going to be a good therapeutic window, that we don't actually destroy the, the normal stem cells, and that the disease can be controlled just with a single target. Again, it could be that the disease could be driven by, yes, you can wipe out, let's say, FLT3-positive AMLs. The problem is going to be some of the AML cells may have low FLT3 and evade it. Some of them are going to have other drivers. There's clonal heterogeneity in AML. So what you're doing is you're just selecting for a new population. And that's one of the key features of AML, sort of moving target, sort of just like the way um, uh, COVID viruses. It just COVID virus mutates, for AML, probably those mutations are already there and they just you're just selecting out for them. I want to ask you about immunotherapy. What were some of the findings that were presented that, again, you're excited about? Well, for immunotherapy, of course, the bispecifics are important. The CAR-Ts, improvement in CAR-Ts, three-day processing of, to make CAR-T cells and speed up the manufacturing. And also, generally speaking, the early limited time for manufacturing also creates CAR T cells that are more active. So that's an important result. They'll speed it up and also make it perhaps more effective. NK cell therapy. These are alternative cells that can kill tumors. That's what they're trained to do. So we saw some very nice data. So what the NK cell therapy is doing is basically mixing a bispecific antibody in the lab that'll latch onto NK cells and put those back in. And they recognize 
CD30, which is on Hodgkin's lymphoma cells and can kill Hodgkin's lymphoma effectively. The normal host, the, the normal human response to cancer, unfortunately, is often not successful, uh, at least as, you know, as for patients who develop cancer. But what would be a more robust sort of natural response? I mean, it looks like CAR Ts are bringing in T cells or they might bring in NK cells. Share with us a little bit. I mean, what would be ideal? What would be in that armamentarium? Right. So I think the holy grail is to take the patient's immune system and just activate it to kill tumors. And so one could imagine with the genetic manipulations that we can do and the delivery systems of genetic material, one could imagine something like the mRNA vaccines, where what you do is you take a genetic construct, you put it in a lipid vehicle, which is kind of what the uh, mRNA vaccines are in, that will direct it to the T cells of the patient. You get expression of a new receptor, a CAR T receptor, and the T cells just work and kill the tumors. That would be ideal. And some companies are actually working on that. And there is some indication with a couple of other genetic manipulations that that can work. There are a couple of major barriers. One is getting a lipid particle directly to the T cells and only to the T cells where you want to get it to. You don't want it to go to any other cell. So the delivery is a major issue, but it's being worked on. You know, this has been going on for 30, 40 years. And so you could see with mRNA, we've sort of solved that problem. Well, getting a genetic construct is harder, but heading in the right direction. So that's the holy grail. And the other thing, of course, is even if we were able to activate T cells and NK cells within a patient of their own cells, the issue is going to be the immune cells just ages. So as patients get older, the immune system just gets exhausted. And so we're going to have to figure out if we're really going to try to use patient cells, we're going to have to also figure out how to actually invigorate those cells within the patient. That's a wholly different problem and probably is part of the reason why people get cancer in the first place. The immune system just fails to detect and kill the cancer cell. In the press, there has been talk about mRNA therapy vaccines to treat cancer. Was there anything presented at ASH or what else have you been hearing about that topic? Yeah, I don't think there was anything at ASH that I'm aware of, but the concept of using a vaccine to control cancer is, of course, you know, we have the HPV vaccines, but in terms of controlling blood cancer, nothing yet. So the way those vaccines are going to work, and there's some experimental work going on now, even in the cl in clinical trials, is they're going to have to recognize a marker on the surface of those cells that will allow a killing cell to recognize it, for example, a T cell to recognize it. So you could engineer T cells to a specific neoantigen, a new antigen that would appear on those tumor cells and kill those tumor cells. And the question is, what are those neoantigens? It's possible it could be even an antigen that is just uniquely expressed on the tumor cell, but it could be a neoantigen, meaning like it's a newly created, for example, a fusion protein that never exists. And so you create this fusion protein. That's what tumor cells do. If that's presented on the surface, that could be a good neoantigen target. So it's coming, but it's still got a long ways to go. Lee, if you would tell us about the, what's new in CLL at, at right. the ASH meeting. Yep. So um, very exciting news, actually. So for CLL, there's going to be multiple therapies, options that are coming along. Of course, we have the covalent inhibitors for BTK, and we know that they can control the disease long-term. 
In particular, Zanabrutinib was put head-to-head in a large phase three trial against Abrutinib, and uh, Zanabrutinib had, for uh, for CLL patients, uh, better progression-free survival, better overall response, and less atrial fibrillation. So that looks like an improvement in possibly standard of care that will be used in placement of Abrutinib. Of course, there is a calibrutinib, and we don't know whether xanabrutinib is going to outperform a calibrutinib, but xanabrutinib clearly looks to be a good option for people who are deciding on a brutinib versus xanabrutinib. Beyond that, there is the non-covalent inhibitors, notably pertabrutinib, which is actually now in five phase three trials, and it's been applied for approval. We're going to see that pretty soon in mantle cell lymphoma, I hope, for the FDA. They also have very nice data in chronic lymphocytic leukemia as well. So it's an option after a patient would fail the covalent inhibitors. And then finally, we have the degraders of BTK. Those are also in the clinic. Um, so yet, yet another option to target BTK. So there are basically xanabrutinib, an improvement over an abrutinib pertabrutinib, a non-covalent inhibitor, and then the degrader. So three different BTK approaches coming along. Well, I have to say, very exciting yep. for a disease. Yep. So many years ago, our options were pills, so, or, or with, with really no chance of a complete remission. I wanted to ask you about precision medicine, AML. What's mm-hmm. new? I think the most exciting thing is... Um, the so-called MLL menin inhibitors. There are two companies now that have uh, these compounds in the clinic. And for the audience that doesn't know, MLL menin is a rare fusion protein that occurs in AML. It's highly prevalent in infants and typically uh, means a, a bad outcome. It also occurs in adults in less high frequency. But in addition to that, people who have NPM mutants are also sensitive to MLL menin inhibitors, and MPN mutations are prevalent in about 30% of the population of AML. These compounds are now advancing into phase two and actually even into phase three trials. They give a complete response rate in the 30% range, which is about similar to what the other approved agents, the FLT3 inhibitors, the IDH inhibitors, have achieved. So They're in the range of showing that these compounds might be part of the armamentarium that would be FDA-approved in the future. So that's very exciting. I should also add that the foundation of this work was done by Yolanta Grambeka, and it started in 2007. LLS funded this work. So we've been funding this work for about 15 years. So from LLS perspective, it's incredibly exciting to see after one and a half decades that the clinical results are here, and it looks very promising. Amazing, and hopefully will lead to tremendous uh, success in the clinic. That was something that's important to you, LLS, and to all of us, is uh, uh, equity and diversity in caring for patients with uh, blood cancers. Right. So this was a topic, actually, that uh, LLS presented in a satellite symposium entitled Elevating Equity and Caring for Patients with Hematologic Malignancies. And there's a lengthy discussion about healthcare disparities and how patients who are underserved minorities have an inability to access the best care for blood cancers. And so there was a lengthy discussion about how to overcome those barriers um, using community engagement and best practices for promoting equity across, across levels of care. 
This is a recording with a CMECE symposium, and it's posted on the LLS Continuing Education webpage. In addition, what we're seeing is the bar is getting raised in terms of what is going to be required for FDA approvals in the future, not only comparative trials, for example, phase three trials, which is actually being inserted into the regulatory review, but also demonstration that the trials have diversity within them. So they're representative of the population of at least the United States. That's a challenge because historically what we've seen in clinical trials is minorities have been, I wouldn't say excluded is the right word. I would say not sought out. Many of the minorities are in rural settings or patients that have difficulty getting access to where the trials are being held, for example, at major medical centers, which could be 50 miles away or could be an hour, an hour and a half away if you're in New York. Uh, For example, if you're in the boroughs to get into the uh, Manhattan to get into the clinical trial. So this is a major barrier and how to overcome this is actually a very complicated problem. One thing LLS is doing is we've placed a hub and spoke model with six hub and spokes around the country where the hub is the major medical center and the idea is to put the clinical trial guided by the hub in the community setting so the patients don't have to commute and to get uh, the advantage of the clinical trials that are being run by the major medical centers. And I think actually that's probably the future of where trials are going to be go to make sure that we include minorities and also make it more accessible to patients overall. Lee, I know that LLS sponsored a special seminar called Navigating the Frontier of Hematologic Malignancy Therapies. Um, What would you like to share about that session? Well, I think Helen Heslop did an excellent overview of all the different types of immunotherapies that are being used, from antibodies to antibody drug conjugates to bispecifics to CAR-T to figure out how to improve all of these. And so I think that was a very exciting uh, presentation of all the options that exist. There's also um, a presentation by Dr. Roskowski about how to actually sample the blood and without doing a biopsy, figure out what the status of the tumor is and also to use it even prognostically to evaluate when a patient walks in the door, what is the status of their tumor, what mutations might exist, how do we, and to ability to, to just by sampling the blood, to know that the patient's going to relapse radiologically weeks or even months before they actually do so. So therapies can be actually begin when there's a molecular change. If that can be incorporated into general practice, that will be a major way of assessing systemic-wide what's going on with tumors in patients, as opposed to doing biopsies or repeated radiologic scans. Obviously, a a still very timely issue is COVID, and I know that LLS has a COVID database. Uh, Is there anything new from that? So we're coming to the end of our COVID analysis, we think. I say we think because we don't know where COVID is going to go exactly. But what we've done is we've used it extensively over the last two years to build a registry where 1,200 patients have joined the registry. We follow the immune response to the vaccinations in thousands of patients. And we've reported what the results are for two vaccinations, three vaccinations, and are now beginning to look at breakthrough infections after vaccinations. The bottom line is, the message for patients and physicians is, 
that 25% of patients, particularly those who have B-cell malignancies, will fail to make detectable or have very low levels of anti-spike antibodies and therefore are susceptible to COVID-19 infections in the future. This improves if you give third and fourth vaccines, the anti-spike response to the vaccination improves. But nevertheless, people with B-cell malignancies are still going to be behind the curve in terms of getting a, a, a sufficient immune response that will be equivalent to normal, healthy individuals. Now, there is another arm of the immune system that responds to the vaccinations, and that's called T-cells. But what we've learned of late is, yes, we could see a T-cell response, but there are two types of T-cells. The CD4 cells respond, but they principally help the B cells make antibodies. The CD8 cells, uh, however, are not responding well. And so we need to actually design better vaccine to engage CD8 cells because those are the cells that actually are capable of killing infected cells. So on one hand, you've got making antibodies, protecting against an infection. If you get an infection, that's the job of the T cells to actually kill those infected cells. And of course, what we learned, unfortunately, is for breakthrough infections, breakthrough infections have now occurred even on Evershield, a preventative antibody cocktail that's probably going to be accentuated by the fact that the viruses have changed. The ability of Evershield to kill the new viral strains, the ones that are currently present in high amounts, BQ1.1 and BQ1, are resistant to Evershield. So Evershield probably has very little efficacy in terms of controlling, preventing infections. In addition, beptilovimab, which is another antibody that was used to um, treat people who got infected, is no longer efficacious against the new strains. Well, the good news is that the antiviral drugs, the Paxlovin, still retains good activity. So the message to patients for blood cancer is, of course, be cautious. But in the event that you get infected, you should contact your physician within five days because that is the time when Paxlovid is actually most likely to work. So it's critically important that if a blood cancer patient gets infected, I want to say that again, contact your physician immediately. Paxlovid is available. It is effective in terms of controlling an infection and avoiding hospitalization. So we've talked about updates in leukemia, lymphoma, and myeloma. Anything that you want to share about uh, what's new in myeloproliferative neoplasms and in myelodysplasia? There are a couple of new drugs to control myelofibrosis. They're still JAK inhibitors. They may work better or in combination with ruxolitinib. So I think we're going to see a little bit of improvement, hopefully, in the control of myeloproliferative diseases, but still a lot of ground to cover there. Lee, there's been very exciting news about bispecifics of myeloma. Uh, what did you hear at ASH about those new drugs? Right. So um, teclistamab is a BCMA bispecific that, like the BCMA CAR-T, also effective in relapse refractory myeloma and got approved by the FDA recently. So that's one bispecific that's approved. There's a whole suite of bispecifics whether that be to CD20 or to BCMA that are coming up right behind it, that I think we're going to see approvals of those compounds anywhere within the next month, mosinituzumab, CD20 by, by CD3, as well as BCMA by specifics. Amazing. And I, I want to thank you again for joining us. It was terrific talking with you last year and again this year, not only to hear your perspective on uh, some of the new advances, but also your excitement about those. So thank you again. 
and we have been very fortunate to have with us Dr. Lee Greenberger, who is the Chief Scientific Officer and Senior Vice President at LLS. Lee, thanks for joining us. Okay, thank you so much. And I want to thank all of you for listening to this great and informative episode. For a listing of all of our healthcare professional continuing education activities, podcasts, and healthcare professional resources, please visit lls.org CE. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other support resources. And I want to encourage you to sign up to receive notifications of future podcast episodes by subscribing to treatingbloodcancers.org. LLS also offers a series of podcasts for patients and families at lls.org slash podcast. And we look forward to you joining us on future episodes and podcasts. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.